In the book of Exodus, chapter 20, which is the chapter in the Old Testament when God gave the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel, immediately following his giving of those commandments, the very next thing that God spoke through Moses, or to Moses and then to the people through him, is that they were to build an altar. And the reason for that is because God knew that they would break the law that was ultimately given and that they would need a sacrifice in order to make atonement for it. But God told Moses that when my people build an altar to make sacrifice unto me, that it's imperative that there are not stairs or steps that ascend up onto that altar. It is to be on level ground. And then God gives the reason for that. He says, so that their nakedness does not appear. They would wear robes in those days primarily, and as they would go up those steps, the people that were down below that might be in that company uh, would then see up the skirt of those robes, and it would be a, a, a source of vulnerability to those uh, priests or those worshipers that were offering that sacrifice unto the Lord. And so what God was doing is that he was protecting the dignity of the worshiper and also the sanctity of the observer. And so the command was no steps onto the altar. And what God ultimately was communicating is that when someone is worshiping me or when someone is serving me, they are not to be on an elevated platform above everyone else. And that, of course, figuratively translates into what often happens in the hearts of observers when they see the life of a leader. And it's what took place in the church in Corinth not long after the Apostle Paul had left. They had gotten their eyes off of Jesus, who was the object of worship, and the one who birthed the church and bought the church with his blood. And they had gotten their eyes onto the human instruments that were now serving Christ by serving his people. And the result of that is that not only was Christ diminished in his person and in his position, but what that then translated into is that it disabled the Christians and it deprived them of the glory that would be theirs should their eyes be in the place where God intended them to be. And any time a Christian gets their eyes off of Christ and onto anything else, there's going to be a damaging effect in the life and in the walk of that believer. There will be a diminished power. There will be a departure of wisdom. There will be confusion and cloudiness that will come in. And then the byproduct of that is naturally going to be that there will be divisions amongst God's people. Because the personalities of leaders and the methods and ways in which leaders lead differs, then if people's eyes are upon those leaders, then naturally there's going to be schisms and divisions that come into the relationships that exist between God's people. And all of those things that are the byproduct of getting eyes off of Christ and onto man, onto leaders, were happening in the church in Corinth. And so the question that Paul kind of answered, but he continues to answer now as we get into chapter 4, is what is the proper 
place for leaders in the body of Christ, or more so as Christians, and all of us are Christians, and all of us are following, and all of us are looking at something, as Christians, how should we reckon, or how should we value, or how should we be looking at leaders and pastors and people that God uses in the body of Christ in the proper way? Because leadership, pastoring, teaching, all of those things are essentials. They're God-given and God-ordained. But how can we use those things without those things becoming a distraction to us and getting our eyes off of the main thing? And that's what Paul addresses in chapter 4, and it's the question that he answers. And so we look in verse 1 and notice what Paul says. He says, and I, brethren, oh, I'm sorry, wrong, looking at the wrong, that was chapter 2, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So he begins there by just saying very simply that this is how you're to look at us. This is how you're to hold us in esteem and what you're to see when you look at us. Uh, the word account, very simply, it just means to reckon. So that you've reckoned or you've placed within a category in your mind what these people that we call leaders are. And so we want to put them in the right category. Notice also the word us that's used there. He says, let a man so account of us. Now, the us speaks of three people that he's already mentioned by name. Number one is, of course, himself. The second is Apollos, who was the one that many of them had uh, begun to um, follow because of his relevance with them and, and, and the way that he resonated with them, the pastor kind of of the church in Corinth. And then the third person that Paul mentioned was Peter. The Apostle Peter, whom some of them uh, maybe had met or heard of in some way. And so that's who he's speaking of. He's speaking of two apostles and a pastor. And, and because it's not exclusively just apostles and because he includes a pastor, it, it really spreads by and large upon the whole scope and span of leadership. Whoever God would use in any type uh, of leadership. And, and it goes really even further than that. Because if you really think about what it is that we've been called into in this faith, it goes beyond just being observers or those that continually and constantly learn or in the place of the pew. But we ultimately understand that God is raising each one of us up in some form or capacity to lead someone, even if it's only just our family. There's always a calling. There's always a service. There's something that's attached to God's plan for my life. And so how would we reckon ourselves as we look at our own life and see the place of leadership that God has given us in whatever capacity that is? So how do we do it? And so he gives three things there that we're to do, three categories, if you would, that we're to place leaders in. The first, he says, let them account us as ministers of Christ. Now, the word minister just very simply means servant. That's what it means. Now, we've kind of made that its own thing. And so if someone is a minister, we, we consider that kind of like a vocation or something that you go to school and get a degree in ministry. And if someone says, that's my brother, the minister, we have a totally different concept uh, of that word than what it means when we see it in the Bible. In the Bible, it just very simply means a servant, someone who serves. What is a servant? A servant is someone who makes life easier for others. That's what a servant is. 
And so Paul says, if you're going to look at a leader and place them in a category in your mind, the very first thing that should uh, come up in your mind is that that person is a servant. They make life easier for others. And that service is for Christ. They are servants of Christ. Meaning that the reason for their service is to please him and to do what it is that he has called him to do. And so that's what we are. We're servants, and we're servants of Christ. The second thing is that he says that we are stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, the nature of the service that we've been enlisted in by Jesus, who is the Lord, is that we are managers of his mysteries. That's what Paul says right here, that we're stewards or those that are holding on to really the riches of his possession that he calls the mysteries of God. Now, what are the mysteries of God? The mysteries of God are the scriptures. That's what he has left here for us. It's the account, the full revelation of the Bible that gives to us a complete picture of who God is, a complete picture of what life is all about, a complete picture of who we are and what self is and what man is and what we've been made for and and what life is all about. And so that's what we're stewards over. And God has laid all of that out and he's given that to his servants, Paul, Peter, Apollos, and those that have followed them through the ages as leaders in the body of Christ for the sake of using those mysteries and that treasure to build up and bless the lives of other people. That's the stewardship that's been given. And he says that's what we've been called to. And that's what we are. We are skillful swordsmen. I love the fact that the Bible is alluded to here as the mysteries of God. Because the Bible is written in such a way that, in a sense, it is very mysterious. God has put a supernatural protection upon the Word of God that makes it spiritually discerned. Meaning that a natural man who doesn't have the spirit of Christ can't open the Bible and look it up and discover all the mysteries of God. They don't make sense to them. You need the Holy Spirit of God in you in order to uncover it. Have you ever wondered why there isn't just a segment of the Bible that's called marriage? Okay, this is the marriage section. And everything that there is for us to know about marriage is recorded in that section. Okay, here's the money and finance section, and we turn to that, and, and we look at that, and we read it, and, and we study it, and we pick it apart, and that's it, everything that we need to know. And this is the parenting section, and so you can just do that with everything in life. Why didn't God organize it that way? Why is it that the deepest revelation about parenting can come in half a verse in Job? And you're like, what in the world is that doing there? It speaks volumes to me as a dad, but I never would have even thought to look for it there. And God did that on purpose, first of all, so that, so that we would you know, uncover it in the broad spectrum of the whole. He did it also for protection. Because you can technically tear out a page or a chapter or even a book of your Bible, and you could reconstruct that book with the rest of the scripture that still remained. God made the Bible to operate in such a way as that is that there's no one scripture that isolates a doctrine or a truth. It's spread out over the scope of the span. It's kind of like a tree that you can lop off a branch, and that branch can grow back again. And the Bible is written in that way. It's the mysteries of God. And thus there's a stewardship that exists within the ranks of ministry that are a constant growth 
in the understanding of those mysteries. That applies not just to leaders, but to the entire body of Christ. Every one of us becomes stewards over the mysteries of God. In Isaiah chapter 28, the prophet Isaiah, God the Holy Spirit, through the prophet Isaiah, speaks to us a little bit on this. And this is what he says. And this is kind of an important concept for us to understand. He says, Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? The answer? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. We talked about that last week. The milk of the word versus the meat of the word. And here's how that happens. He says, For precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept. Line upon line. Line upon line. Here a little and there a little. You say, okay, well, how does this work? We understand the context of this is knowledge, it's teaching, it's the meat of the word, it's doctrine, it's understanding the mysteries of God, as it were. So what is he talking about here? A precept, very simply, is just a point. And a line, very simply, is just a line. And if you could imagine for just a moment someone who is surveying a a portion of ground or perhaps maybe even creating a layout to uh, pour a concrete foundation because they were going to erect a building. The first thing that they would do is they would just nail a point into the ground with a, with a stake. And then they would tie a string around that point, and they would then draw a line with that string, and it would go to another point. And then they would nail a stake into the ground, tie the line around it. And then from there, they would draw another line, and they would outline the footprint of the structure that they were seeking to build. And then one by one, they begin to fill in that footprint with stones, the stones that were ordained and created for that structure, the lines and the points determining where those blocks, those building blocks go. And then from those points, they would then begin to build upward, measuring always off the lines and the points, making sure that everything is plumb and square in the way that it's supposed to be. You say, what does that have to do with the word of God? Everything. Because what we do here teaching and what you do on your own when you're reading is that you're pulling out, first of all, the points, the things that God has said, the precepts, if you will, a command, something that God issues forth and just says, this is truth. And we can nail it in the ground and say, I understand that. That's a point of truth. But then from there, we draw a line and we read the scripture line upon line, line upon line, line upon line. And we move from that point knowing that it's immovable. Until we come to another point, boom, and we see the connection between those two points. A line has been drawn. And then we continue in the word, drawing a line from there, until we come to another point that relates to the first two. And then from there, another line and a point. And then we begin to build, and we build upward. But here's what happens. That year after year, and day after day, and week after week, as we study the word of God and give ourselves to it, The lines and the points build on each other and a structure of truth that looks like something begins to formulate in our mind and we come to an understanding of who God is and an understanding of what life is all about and an understanding of who we are in self and an understanding of what is true and noble and righteous and that lives and endures. And so the lines and the points that are constantly being laid into our lives are translating into something in our understanding that then can be lived out in the way that we express ourselves and relate with this world. And so we're called into a stewardship over these mysteries that we might, as we continue in it, grow in our understanding of who God is. 
And he says, if you're going to look at a leader in some way, then part of that measurement must be that they are good stewards over the mysteries that God has entrusted to them. And part of that stewardship is not just the giving of it away, but also the continual building of it in the life itself. That's why I would say that it's the number one priority of any leader to be constantly immersed in the word of God. Because the strength of your lead is going to be directly related to your strength in God's word and your understanding of who he is. And so he says we are stewards over the mysteries of God. And then, um, and then the third qualification is given to us in verse 2. He says, moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And so not only are we servants, not only are we stewards, but it's important that we also are found faithful. The word faithful simply means to be trustworthy, to be diligent in the discharge of our duty. Now that relates to our stewardship and that we know how and when to use it and we're faithful to use it. But it also relates to our obedience. Because if we're going to be found faithful, then that means that we must be obedient to the one that we are serving in all things. And so what we must be is faithful to him. We must obey what the Lord tells us to do. And you'll notice that that word found is used there, which means that there's a testing. Is that he must be proven or shown that he is faithful in what it is that God has called us to do. Now, we've seen three things that Paul lists as really the drive behind the duty it's servanthood it's stewardship and it's faithfulness now here's the amazing dynamic about those three things in the context of what paul is trying to say to us throughout this chapter is that all three of those things are absolutely immeasurable by the observing of the eye you cannot properly judge the quality of a leader based upon your understanding of how they're doing in those three areas. And the reason is because all of those things are absolutely invisible. You say, wait a minute, you can tell if someone's a servant or not. You can see by looking at their life. Yes, you can tell if someone's a servant or not. But you cannot tell who they're serving. Someone who's serving themselves can look a whole lot like they're serving Christ because they know they have to make it look like they're serving Christ in order to have people follow them. Concerning their stewardship, you can never know a person's affection or relationship with the word of God and how they're doing in that. You can't see it because it happens in the heart. It's a position of someone's life where they're at in their love for the word of God and their understanding of the word of God. Concerning their faithfulness, how do you know if what you see on the outside is the same thing that they're doing when they're in private or the same thing that they hold dear and secret on the inside? You absolutely cannot measure the quality of a leader by God's standards because God's standards are under the surface. Only he can see if someone is actually a true servant of Christ or not. You can't see the records of those, those services. Thus, notice what Paul says. Because of this, because you can't properly judge, he says this, but it is with me a very small thing that I should be judged by you or of man's judgment. Paul says, because it's impossible to evaluate the quality of a minister by anything that you can notice in their life, then I've chosen that the position of my life is that it's a very small thing with me that you should judge my servant. Because you can't even know if I'm a good servant to Christ or not. 
Now, before you begin to think, well, does that mean that Paul wasn't accountable to anyone? Is he saying, I don't care what you think of me. I serve Christ. Is that the attitude of the Apostle Paul in this? Absolutely not. Because by the end of this chapter, he's going to say to them, he's going to say, look, I want you to evaluate my life because you'll never find another Christian servant who's as faithful to you as I have been. So he's calling them to hold him accountable. What he's saying is that the quality of his lead is not measured by them, it's measured by God. And if it's measured by God, then he chooses in his life to please God rather than to please men. And that is of utmost importance. And here's why. Because if a leader for one moment leaves off the desire and the ambition of pleasing God and he begins to serve to please man, it is extremely easy then to begin to serve appearances. I know what I have to look like in order to appear faithful and appear good in your eyes. And I can begin to minister to the appearances rather than to what's real and authentic and genuine within my life. Pastor Bobby has taught me many things in my time that I've been here at the church, but one of the things that he has taught me is the definition of a psychopath. And the definition of a psychopath is someone who knows how to observe behavior and then adjust their own accordingly in order to pass themselves off as whatever they need to. Classic definition of a psychopath. It's sad to say there are many psychopaths that are leading in the body of Christ today. There are many psychopaths in the pulpit that are teaching the very word of God because they've learned what they need to look like And what they need to do in order to get people to think that they're faithful servants of Christ. And they do those things, but they've lost sight of the fact of whether or not they're actually pleasing Christ in their service. They've become man-pleasers. And Paul says, I dare not let that become an attribute of my personality and my ministry. I choose that I am not going to put very much esteem at all on what you think of me. I don't care what man's judgment is within my life. He goes on to say this. Not only do I not care what you think, he says, yea, I don't even judge my own self. Not only is it impossible for you to evaluate me accurately, I can't even evaluate myself accurately. Self-assessment is impossible, and the reason is because I can't see the recesses of my own heart. And that is true for every one of us every day that we're on this earth. We will never know the depths of what's in us. And God is constantly, isn't he, uncovering our motives and our reasons and our rationale and our selfishness and our flesh. And sometimes we can think we have the most pure motives for doing what we're doing. And then God shines his light in such a way, just he gets the angle just right and he shows us exactly what's really going on inside of our heart. And if we're honest and our eyes are open to it, we go, oh, oh, Lord. And so Paul says, I don't even look at my own service and say, wow, I did really good today, or I'm doing really well in Corinth, or God is really using me. He doesn't look at any of that because he realizes that what is seen on the outside can be deceiving. And then he goes on in verse 4 and he says, for I know nothing by myself. That is nothing against myself. Now that's pretty radical. Can anybody here say that? I don't know anything that I'm doing wrong in my life. (laughs) You're a If I said that to you, I'd be a liar. I'll put it on me. We all know where we struggle. He says, I know nothing against myself, yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judges me is the Lord. I'm not justified by the fact that I can't find dirt in my own life. 
He says, what justifies me is the blood of Jesus Christ every day. What qualifies me is his grace and his calling and what he's given me in my heart and how he uses me and what he chooses to use me for. That's all that matters to me. He's the one that judges my life. Therefore, and here's the therefore. The, the therefore is always the, uh, the connection between what he said and what he's now about to say. Here's the application. Because it's impossible to evaluate the true state of someone's faithfulness to Christ, because you can't see it, this is what you should do. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts and then shall every man have praise of God. He says, listen, don't even try to evaluate the quality of a minister. He says, just reckon that in your mind, put, put that right in a category right now, that no matter what I hear in a church or from a pulpit or from a teaching, I can be blessed by it, I can learn from it, I, I hope that I'm going to get something out of this service, but I will not put that leader up on a pedestal in my mind or compare that leader to another leader and say that this leader is better than that leader or has more to give to me or is more pleasing to the Lord or has it all together, I will not do that. That I will look at that person and I will realize that they're on the exact same plane as I am in the eyes of God. And that is that we are all Christians. We're sinners, saved by grace, blood-bought, and our only merit is the cross of Christ. That's it. And what a leader can give to us is that they've got some experience, and hopefully they've been sanctified a little bit, and God's working in their lives, and they're letting them do it. And, and thus there can be some fruit that can come into my life because of what's coming out of their life. But I will not elevate that leader. He says, do not judge anything before the time because the day is coming when he's going to bring to light the hidden things of darkness what's in the heart is going to be exposed the motives and the reason why the service is being rendered that's going to be exposed all of that will be known he's going to make manifest the counsels of the hearts the things that nobody else knows about that person and then every man will have praise from god and that's the praise that matters in John chapter 5, Jesus was having an argument with the Pharisees, the religious rulers of his day. And in the midst of that argument, they were comparing Jesus with other leaders and all, of, all, all the rest. And Jesus gave them this indictment, and it should pierce all of us like an arrow. He says, how can you believe who receive honor one from another and not the honor that comes from God only? Let that search you for just a minute. Who are you seeking to please today in your service for the Lord, no matter what it is? Is it the people that you're ministering to? Are you, are you serving as a man pleaser? Are you seeking to put forth an appearance? Or are you doing it for the sake of God only? Because the only one that's going to receive a reward for their service, according to Paul, and what he's saying here is the one who's doing it for the Lord out of a pure heart. That's the reason. That's the rationale. He says, then will every man have praise of God. So judge nothing before the time. That's the first therefore. He's saying that to esteem man for his service to the Lord is a waste of time. It's a complete waste of time. The second thing that he says concerning this therefore is this in verse 6. He says, in these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes that you might learn in us 
not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. The best of men is men is a man at best. That's always going to be true. It's interesting when you look back up, uh, or, or just think back up, if you would, to verses 1 and 2, the three things that Paul said that were to account uh, the ministers. Servants, right? Stewards, and faithful. It's amazing to me what's not in that list. Nowhere in that list does he say that they're the anointed, that you're to, to reckon them to be the anointed of the Lord, or the prophetic of the Lord, or the supernatural of the Lord, or the gifted and talented of the Lord, or the successful in the Lord. Notice that he doesn't use the word fruit in there. He doesn't even say the fruitful of the Lord. None of those things are used. Servanthood, stewardship, faithfulness. That's what matters to God. So don't in your mind elevate and puff up any man or any woman who's a leader in the body of Christ because of what God has done with their life. At the end of the day, we're all equal before the Lord. He's not a respecter of persons. Furthermore, Paul goes on to say in verse 7, he says, For who makes you to differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did receive it, then why do you glory as if you had not received it? That's a very logical uh, reasoning, isn't it? Paul says, look, if you see someone and God is using them in a particular way, or they have a gift from God, and everything that that anyone does is, is the result of a gift from God, then where did that gift come from? It didn't come from the person. It's not in them. We know that they didn't deserve it. So if God is using someone's life, then God's the one that's using that person's life. It has nothing to do with the person. It has everything to do with God. What makes any of us different from anyone else in any area of life? It's that God made us the way we are. That's it. And so for us to get our eyes off of God and onto the leader is to miss the whole purpose and the point. We're we're glorifying the gift and the tool rather than the Lord. It's foolishness. And so Paul says, who makes you to differ in glory as though you, you didn't receive it, as though it was in you? He says, now you are full. You are rich. You have reigned as kings without us, and I would to God that you did reign, that we also might reign with you. This is the second time in about ten verses the, the Apostle Paul says that you are full. He said it back up in verse 21 of the previous chapter. He says that all things are yours. Here he says that you are full. In other words, there's nothing that's going to be added to you by a leader that you can't get directly from the Lord himself. Go to Jesus. Get your eyes off of men and get your eyes on to Christ. Now what Paul does next in verse 9 and on through all the way up to uh, verse 13 is that he gives the most incredible real-life example of everything that he's said thus far. Notice what he says in verse 9. He says, For I think that God has set forth us, the apostles, last, as it were, appointed unto death, for we are made a spectacle unto the world and unto angels and unto men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. And we labor, working with our own hands. We don't receive a salary from the ministry. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are as the offscoring of all things unto this day. Offscoring, literally, it's sawdust that's the byproduct of sanding a piece of wood. What do you do with sawdust that you sand it off a piece of wood? 
You say it's useless. If you're a really good carpenter, you know how to make wood glue out of it or wood filler, you know. But otherwise, it's really about useless. You do absolutely nothing with it. You say, what in the world is Paul saying here? And what does it have to do with the context of these verses? Here's what it is. Notice what he said. He says, I think that God has set forth, notice it, us apostles last. Now, that's an extremely paradoxical statement. Because God didn't set the apostles last. He actually set the apostles quite first, didn't he? I mean, they were the 12, originally, that Jesus called to be with him. They were eyewitnesses of his whole entire ministry. They were given power before anyone else had power. They laid hands on people. They raised the dead. Things were given to them. A duty and a ministry was given to them that far exceeds any ministry that any minister has ever had since or ever will again. These were the apostles. They were the pillars upon which Christ established the church. They had a ministry that's unlike any other. And if there was anyone at any time that could have been put up on a pedestal and said, that's the example of a godly leader, then it would be the apostles. They were very much the first. But notice what Paul says. He says that God in his wisdom took the first and he made us the last. And what he means by that is this, is that if you look at our lives and you endeavor to evaluate the quality of our ministry based upon what you see when you look at us, then you're going to come to entirely the wrong conclusion. Because after examining our life for a couple of days or for a week or for a month or for a year, you're going to make your list of what you observed within our life and you're going to see 15 things upon that list that are not going to speak of success that we've been appointed to death, that we've been made a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. Even angels look at us and that doesn't make sense to them. That we're as fools, even lower than you. We're weak, we're despised, we're hungry and thirsty and naked, we're persecuted and homeless. We're appointed to secular labor, not even receiving a salary. We've been given over to pain that we've been called to endure with patience and God has made us to be equal in value to sawdust that is blown off a piece of wood when it is equal to nothing. Now, if you're going to look at a life and say, I'll tell you what a good leader is in the body of Christ, you should be able to say it is about the apostles, right? But there was nothing observable about them on the outside that would cause someone to come to that conclusion. Paul's saying you cannot judge a minister by the facade, by the size of their church, by the words that come out of their mouth, by the people that say, oh, how wonderful, or how many radio programs they're on, or how many books that they've written, or how many sermons that they've preached, you cannot come to the proper conclusion because only God sees the real quality that's underneath the surface. Is Paul making himself clear <laughs> in what he's saying to these, these people here? And so thus he says to them, verse 14, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. He's saying this whole entire part of my speech and my letter to you is because I'm issuing to you a warning. And here's what that warning is. That warning extends to us today. It's the reason why this chapter is here. Listen here. Is that if you begin to think that a leader has it all together, and you begin to place the foundation of your faith upon the example of a leader within the body of Christ, then you are building your spiritual house on very shaky ground. Because the most faithfully appearing minister can turn out to be the greatest crook. 
And the person who appears to be almost nothing can actually turn out to be one of the greatest, most useful servants of Christ. And there's no way for you by human evaluation to determine which one it is. And the protection that you can have for yourself is to not put your eyes or place your faith in that leader, but to get your eyes on to Jesus Christ. And when your eyes are on Jesus Christ and your faith is founded upon him and who he was and what he said and what he did and the work that he's accomplishing in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit, independent of any leader, then it doesn't matter what happens in the realms of men. It won't shake your faith. But if the emphasis of your faith is upon the human instrument or upon the human leader, then what happens when you see through the facade of that leader into what he is at the core and you've been scandalized? Wait, well, if that's my example and if that's what I'm endeavoring to become like, well, then I'll be a hypocrite if I attain unto it, because that's all that person is. And it's scandalous. What happens when the pastor of a large megachurch falls into a financial scandal or into sexual sin or into some abusive revelation of what he's been doing to his staff or to people or to his family? What happens? If your faith is upon that leader, your eyes are on that leader, then you're scandalized, you're ripped off. Now our hearts are broken, and that should be. Because it's a blight on the body of Christ. It's a bruise upon the fruit and the testimony that we've been given. But it doesn't damage God's glory, not one bit. Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His love is constant. His love is faithful. His love is enduring. His word is still true. His counsels still stand. His blood is still effective to the washing away of sins. His Holy Spirit still gives power over sin. He still has the ability to transform our lives. He's still returning and he's going to bring us to heaven and we're going to live with him forever. None of that is shakable. So where should our eyes be? Paul says, as my beloved sons, I warn you, if you continue down the road you're on of being puffed up for one leader over against another, then you're in danger of having a shipwrecked faith. So I warn you, for though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, and isn't that true, even today in the body of Christ? It's interesting that Paul could say that back in that day. It's true today, isn't it? I mean, if you just look at the volume of books that have been written and the volume of, uh, of, of uh, the availability to online commentaries and audio messages and video messages and online church and websites and, and, and blogs and articles and things that are written, and I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands thousands of instructors that every one of us have in the body of Christ. That's always going to be true. You're going to, you're going to glean truth in the body of Christ until the rapture. He says, but, he says, you have not many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. What you've seen in my life, in my weakness and in my fear and in my stumblings and everything else that I am, that you now say he's a loser, He's saying, what you cannot say is that I haven't been committed to you. And what's the difference between a father and a friend? What's the difference between a father and a teacher or an instructor? A father's committed. A father's invested in the life of that uh, person. A father will do and say what's best for the person regardless of how they're going to take it or if they're going to like it. A father is more concerned for the future well-being of that individual than they are for the present comfort of them. That's not always true for an instructor. It certainly isn't true for a charlatan. 
If a leader in the body of Christ is simply interested in drawing a following after himself, then he's going to say whatever he needs to say to keep you coming week after week and to keep you giving period after period. That's what he's going to do. But a father will speak the truth in love even if the truth hurts. A father will do things and say things that might hurt because a father cares more about what's going to happen to you in your future than whether or not you come back next week. And so he says, verse 16, Wherefore, I beseech you, be followers of me. If you're going to look at any example at all, look at the example that I have laid in your life. And he's already told us in the previous chapters what that example was. Weakness, fear, letting the power be in the message and not in the delivery of the message. And he says, For this cause I have sent unto you Timothy, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways which are in Christ as I teach everywhere and in every church. Paul's saying, I can't come there at this time right now, but what I can do is I can send the one man that I have with me that I trust exclusively. Timothy was the only one that Paul trusted of all those that ministered with him that would be a faithful representation of what Paul is describing here. And he says, so I'm going to send Timothy to you, and as soon as you see him, you're going to remember me. Because you're going to see the way that he is among you, and it's going to remind you of what really matters. And he says, now some are puffed up as though I would not come to you. But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord will. And I will know not the speech of them that are puffed up, but the power. Some of you are saying the reason that he's sending Timothy to us is because he's afraid to come here himself. His letters are weighty and powerful. He's got authority when he writes, but let's see if he'll come here and put up the kind of fight that he's putting forward in his speech. He says, listen, I will come there. And when I come there, I'm going to know not what people say and how eloquent they are and what they appear like, but I'll be able to discern in an instant the power in that person's life, whether there is power in that life or whether there isn't. He says, here's why. Because the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. You cannot go simply with what you hear. You must go with what's coming out of the life and the fruit that's attached to it. But what will you? He says, shall I come unto you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? So Paul kind of flexes his muscles just a little bit at the end of the chapter. So what are the concluding applications uh, as we look at Paul's messages? He's going to transition as we get into chapter 5 and he's going to go in a completely different direction and leave this all behind him. So what are the concluding applications to what Paul has spoken to us here? Number one is that the strength of one's spiritual life will be in direct proportion to their connection to Jesus Christ alone. And that's true for every person in the body of Christ. Your connection to Christ is going to determine your strength in Christ, not your connection to a church or to a leader or to anything else. The same God that supplies the leader with their stewardship supplies you with what you need. Jesus said in John chapter 15, he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. And he says, any branch that abides in me is going to bear much fruit. And herein is my Father glorified that your fruit would remain. That's his will for every one of our lives, is that we would abide in him and that our lives would bear fruit because of it. There's a, a line in the Pilgrim's Progress. It's, that's something you, you'll, you know, you're going to hear a lot from me. It's, a, it's, it's by far the, the most precious volume, at least in my life, besides the Bible uh, that's ever been written, written by John Bunyan in the 1600s from a prison. 
And it's an allegory about the Christian life. And in the second part of it, um, there's an interaction taking place um, between one of uh, Christiana's sons um, and an older gentleman who's been in the faith uh, for a long time. And he's asking him all kinds of questions just about things in nature, and then he's giving him the application of those things. And one of the questions um, that he asks him is he says, where do the clouds get their rain? And the young man answers the question, and he says, from the sea. And then he says, why? Why did God ordain that the clouds get their rain from the sea? And the young man says, I don't know, tell me. And the answer is profound, what the old man said to the young man. He said, to show that God's ministers should get their doctrine from God. Now think about it. The book of Jude talks about ministers, false ministers as those being clouds without water. So where is it that anyone should get their supply of whatever it is that they have? They should get it from God. Clouds don't get their water from other clouds. The ground gets their water from the clouds. Clouds get their water from the sea. And every one of us in that context are called of God to be saturated with water, but that water comes from God. And so the strength of our spiritual life will be directly proportional to our abiding in Christ and the fixing of our eyes upon Christ. Number two, it is impossible to evaluate or discern the strength or quality of someone's leadership by human means and methods. If you simply go through the Bible and you look at the people that have done the most and been the most fruitful for God, this becomes abundantly clear. The last choice in Samuel's mind was young, ruddy, red-headed David who was out keeping the sheep. Even his father didn't bring him in for the feast. Samuel said, are these all your kids? God didn't choose any of these. And Sam, uh, Jesse said, well, there remains yet the youngest and He's out in the field. He's keeping the sheep. Samuel said, send and fetch him. Go get him. We're not going to eat until he comes. And young David comes in. And as he walks through the door, freckles on his face, young man slingshot in his hand, God whispers in Samuel's ear and says, that's the one. That's the king after my own heart. You look at Gideon. You look at the fearfulness that was in his life prior to God using him to deliver the children of Israel in his days. And on and on and on and on we could go looking at those whom God has used. It never makes sense. But then we look at Saul who was head and shoulders above the rest. We look at Samson who was the strongest man that ever lived. We look at Solomon who was the wisest and we see what came out of their life and in the end they were all shipwrecked. They all came to absolutely nothing. You cannot discern by outward appearance the quality of someone's service or their leadership. This also is from... Uh, that same section of the Pilgrim's Progress. I won't uh, try to quote it to you, but let me just read you a little segment. Um, The same man, his name is Honest in the story, is talking, um, and he's talking uh, out loud, and he's kind of just talking about his life as an old man having observed many things in the Christian faith. And he says this. He says, I am, as you see, an old man, and have been a traveler in this road many a day, and I have taken notice of many things. I have seen some that set out as if they would drive all the world out before them, who yet have in a few days died as they in the wilderness and so never got sight of the promised land. I have seen some that have promised nothing at first setting out to be pilgrims and that one would have thought could not have lived a day that have yet proved very good pilgrims. I have seen some that have run hastily forward 
that again have after a little time run as fast just backwards again. I have seen some who have spoken very well of a pilgrim's life at first, that after a while have spoken as much against it. I have heard some that when they first set out for paradise say positively that there is such a place, who when they have been almost there have come back again and said that there is none. I have heard some vaunt, boast that they would do in case they should be opposed or what they would do in case they were opposed, that have even at a false alarm fled faith, the pilgrim's way and all. And isn't there truth in that? As we just think in our own life and in, in, in the Lord, for some of us that have been walking with the Lord for some time, and we've seen some people that have come out of the gun, saved, born again on fire, that we've thought, wow, the potential that this person's life has. And then a few years pass and we move from place to place and church changes, shuffle around, and we say, where is this person? They were so zealous, so on fire, and now they're just gone. And then there's people that we look at. They're newly saved. They're feeble-minded. They seem so weak that there's nothing ever good going to come out of their life. And then we see them a little bit later on and we say, wow, look how God is using them. It's so incredible. It's such a beautiful thing. You just can't know because you can't see what's going on inside the heart. And finally, number three, our emphasis as Christians and our energy must always be for ourselves upon the invisible rather than on what is seen. The most important aspect of your spiritual life is what is taking place in the invisible part of your heart between you and God. That's what matters. What people see doesn't matter. What people think of you doesn't matter. What you are and what God sees, that's what matters. And when we get our eyes off of that and we begin to serve the appearances, we say, praise the Lord. When praise the Lord, we don't even know why we're saying that. Why why am I saying praise the Lord right now? I'm, I'm saying that because that's what we say in church. We say, I love you, Lord. But inside, we're, we're saying to ourselves, I, I don't know if I really love the Lord. I know I'm supposed to love the Lord. But if I really try to evaluate the way, do I really love the Lord? Do I even know the Lord? Who is the Lord? I love you, Lord. Listen, if you don't love the Lord, don't say you don't have to say that because he sees the condition of your heart. Here's what God knows, is that if you continue to grow in him and continue to get to know him, not only are you going to love him, he's going to be the greatest affection that you ever thought or, or, or even beyond what you ever could think you could have in a life. But you don't have to be more than what you are right now. Don't serve appearances. You don't have to appear more spiritual than you are because that's the popular sentiment in the church. When God saves us, we're wretches. He pulls us out of the world and we're almost dead. That's how many of us come in. And it doesn't make sense to think that three weeks after we're born again, we're supposed to be, you know, these perfect, put-together people that are dressed the right way and saying all the right things and our families are all put together the right way. That's just a lie. We're serving appearances. And that's a slippery slope. We're to serve Christ. And we are what we are by the grace of God and we will be who we will become again by the grace of God. And there's nothing that we can do to make that happen quicker by changing our appearance or giving ourselves to outward appearances. Someone has said, you worry about your character and let God worry about your reputation. And if you can hear that tonight, and if you can live that way and you say, God, may my life not be what is seen outwardly,
but may the strength of my walk with you be what is on the inside, then you will see the end of that desire. He will take care of your reputation in making you what he wants you to be. And he can do a much, much better job than you or I could. But if our focus becomes reputation and appearance, we have become the servants of men. And Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, he said that if I would become the servants of men, then I can no longer be the servant of Christ. And that's true. There's truth in it. So what's the point? Let our eyes be taken off of men, off of appearances, off of evaluating, off of the divisions, and let our eyes be fixed firmly upon Jesus Christ and Him alone. And the outcome of that is that we'll experience the power of God in our lives, we'll experience the wisdom of God in our lives, we'll experience the love of God flowing into and also through our lives and the fellowship that we have with one another will be genuine and our church will be a place where God is very comfortable to abide. And that's what we want. Amen? Father, we thank you tonight for what you've spoken through the great Apostle Paul. We thank you for what has been uh, laid down for us, Lord, these truths. And I pray that, Lord, tonight adjustments would be being made in our focus and in our emphasis. God, that you would be taking our eyes off of the human and placing them upon the divine. And that you would be taking our eyes off of what we think we're supposed to be and setting them upon who you've made us to be and who we are in you today. And may the truth of your word ever be laid down in our hearts, line upon line and precept upon precept that your mysteries would be unfolded to us one by one and that we would become the beneficiaries of this great and incredible life and this great salvation that you've given. And may we be your sons and daughters, not just in word, but in truth. And we ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.